Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. So we're continuing our discussion of the Shona Esrei, and um, I think this is maybe our fifth class. And we're going to be beginning the middle section of the Shona Esrei, which deals with the requests that we have. It's called the request section. Uh, originally, it had 12 brachas, and the 13th was added during a certain time period in Jewish history, which we'll talk about when we get there. But before we begin, just a little bit of inspiration again on the uh, kavana, the idea of prayer, what prayer is all about. And um, just a little bit about that. So again, from Rabbi Moshe Grilak, who wrote an article in the Mishpacha magazine, he, he writes, so what, so what actually happens in the heart of a person as he stands in prayer? How does this dynamic take place, raising the neshama like the flowing waves? 21st century man looks upon prayer with a dismissive, if not disdainful, eye. His approach to life is pragmatic. Show him results and he'll concede that something is effective. If something doesn't work, he casts it aside. Seeing is believing, he says, and you over there bobbing up and down. Stop talking to yourself. A true realist, however, knows there are many perfectly real things that we can't see. We can't see atoms, sound waves, or electric currents. We can't weigh and measure love or loyalty. We can't fill a bottle with anger. Earnestness and idealism are very real phenomena, although we can't see or touch them. Only a fool would say that a table or a lamp, because it is tangible, means more in life than love or fear. And now, locked inside with a viciously powerful pandemic that we cannot see or sense, but whose impact is all too real, we know as never before that some of the world's most powerful elements cannot be discerned with our limited sense. Prayer, too, is an intangible reality. I also wanted to speak a little bit before we go into this section on prayer, a little bit from Rav Shimshon Pincus's book, Sha'arim Tefillah, where he outlines 10 different ways of accessing Hashem through different forms of tefillah. And this tefillah of crying out, which is called bitzur, he begins by talking about the idea that people generally cry out in a moment of pain. They do this because they're requesting mercy and compassion. And this is the yesod of prayer that we cry out when we feel that we are lacking something. They're asking for what is lacking. So this is the idea of crying out in a moment of tsar, in, in a moment of pain from the word bitzur. Now he explains that man is different from animals. Animals have all their needs. They do not worry. And they have a certain serenity because they don't live in the future. They don't think about the future. They are mindful in the real sense of the word. They live only in the moment. As long as they have what to eat and what, you know, shelter over their heads at that moment in time, they're good and they don't think about the future. Man, however, is always worried about the future. He's always focused on what he lacks, what he needs. The greater a man's mind, says Rapinkas, the greater his sense of lacking. If he lives for Olam Hazah, then he spends all his life worrying about becoming wealthy, about having more and more and more. And he knows that even if he's wealthy today, he knows that the wheels of fortune are always spinning and that at one moment he could be plunged into bankruptcy. And so the man who lives in Olam Hazah is constantly worrying about what the future will bring and how it might change. Now, the interesting thing is Rapinka says, even if a person is a tzaddik and he's living for olam haba, so to speak, he's also worried. He's worrying all the time about his olam haba. He's worrying about his chataim, his sins, 
his mistakes, those things that cut him off or create disconnection between him and the Ribbono Shalolam in this world. He's constantly worried about his Avodah Hashem and falling short. You know, he takes seriously the idea that every second that a person isn't sitting and learning Torah, um, when he has time, when he should be, that he is going to be taken to task for it, that it's considered bitulzman, right? It's considered wasting time. So every man, Rabbi Pincus explains, is in a state of lacking something. And the teva of a human being is to be constantly yearning for salvation, yearning for this freedom from tsar. So why did Hashem create man like this? The idea is, is Hashem did this purposefully because of this feeling of lack. Man is always looking for salvation. And since Hashem is the only one who can provide it, man will work to acquire Yeshua by cleaving to Hashem through tefillah. Okay? And this is the posture that we want to have in mind as we go into the request section of the Shemona Esrei. Okay, so the 13 middle brachas, the Talmud tells us that it's only after going through the three brachas of praise, which we already spoke about, if you remember, that correspond to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Um, it's, the Talmud tells us that only after enumerating the master's praises does the servant go on to list his personal requests, right? Or in another way of thinking, at first we have to acknowledge through our praise that you, Hashem, is the one who can deliver. You, are Hashem, is the only one that we can rely on to fill this lack, to fill this need that we have, to give us the salvation that we're hoping for. You're the right address. You're the main post office. You're the one who has all the goods. And therefore, we come to you with our hands open like a pauper, asking for our needs and recognizing, first of all, that through the praises that we gave you, we have sort of solidified within ourselves that we've come to the right place to get our needs met. Now, these 13 essential needs, every Jew says the same words. However, what makes the difference between my prayer and yours is the kavana, the intent of the heart that we bring to these requests. And of course, each one of us has different areas where we feel more of a lack in. And we bring our own personalities, as we said before, Eloke Abraham, Eloke Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov. Each one of our prayers is as unique as the fact that our fingerprints are different. No two people share the same fingerprints, the same face, we're told. So, so too, when we come, even with the same words, what differs is the kavana, the personality, the intention, the life circumstances that we bring to into these words, that we breathe into these words. The egocentric person thinks only of his own needs. And many people come to Hashem with a grocery list, right? I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Check, 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 check. And of course, this is considered a very low level of connecting to the divine. Because just like every parent wants a relationship with their child, that's based on more than just give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, thanks, 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 goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. I'll talk to you next time when I need something else from you, right? We also, Hashem also craves a relationship with us that is not just based on give me, give me, give me, Thanks, talk to you later when I need something else. But it's a relationship that is a connection that transcends what we get, what we give, and goes through difficult times and wonderful times. And it's all about relationship. Now, of course, part of the idea of the relationship is that Hashem created us lacking in order that we would wake up, so to speak, and turn to him for those things that we need. 
As we've said in other classes, the greatest punishment after the chait of Adam was given to the Nachash, who started the whole ball rolling, the snake. And the greatest punishment was that everything he would, he would need, he would always have at his disposal. And what God was basically saying is, I don't want to have any relationship with you. You won't need me. You'll eat the, your food will be on the ground as you slither along. It will always be available. It will always be there. You will never have to ask me for anything. And that is considered the worst idea. It's like kares. It's like being cut off from our source. Okay, so there are people who ask because of their own needs, but the God-centered person asks for these things with an added dimension to it. They're asking for these things to help them in their avodas Hashem, in their service of Hashem. Give me health, give me wealth, give me uh, wisdom, because I want to be a better Eved Hashem. I want to be able to serve you in comfort without worrying about Parnassa, without worrying about my health or being only able to um, devote my strength to you in a kind of limited way. Give me these things for your sake, Hashem, and for my sake, that I should be able to serve you and bring your Shekhinah, to bring your light um, into the world. Give me health so I can serve you better. Give me Parnassah so I have the financial abilities to observe your mitzvot, so I can afford day school tuition, right? Day school tuition, the best form of birth control, they joke, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, give me. Give me what I need so that I can, you know, buy kosher food, so that I can afford what it takes to be a Jew. You've got to have money to be a good Jew. Um, so when we daven for our, for our needs, it's not just to make Hashem aware about what we need, but to impress upon ourselves how much we need Hashem's help. Okay, and this is key. This changes a whole person's entire relationship. And of course, this is part of Bitachon, which we speak about on Wednesdays, right? That the more we rely on Hashem, the more we recognize that our help comes from Him, the more we see that help, the more we feel that closeness, that He's there taking care of us the more we see him winking at us, so to speak, saying, I'm with you, Shefala. I love you. I want your life to be better, right? And the more we ask, again, like Rabbi Avigdor Miller says in his book, we have an expression, open your mouth wide, Hashem says, and I will fill it. I will fill it. So I read this before in our Bitachon class, but I want to read another little part of it. He says, the first part means to ask for everything. There's nothing too small to ask for. Ask for everything. He will fill it. No question. If you ask, he fills. As we said earlier, the uh, foundational idea of prayer is that, yes, God knows what we need, but until we ask for it, until we request it, it's like it's locked up in heaven and we didn't open it with a key. Prayer is the key that opens up the Shefa, that is, that is waiting for us in heaven, that Hashem wants to give us. Of course, we said the first three brachas of the Shemona Esrei are the key that unlocks that Shefa, right? Beginning properly, invoking the names of our Tati, you know, our, our, our great-grandparents, our, our Avos and Imahos, in their merit, Hashem, give us, give their Enaklach, right? And their Zechus. We have protexia. So we, we ask Hashem to open it up. But Rabbi Victor Miller says in his book, if you ask, he fills. However, the second part means that he will fill it. With the emphasis on Hashem, I will fill it. Hashem does not always fill it up the way you want, but the way he wants. When the child opens his mouth wide for ice cream, the mother sometimes shovels in castor oil. You can see where, what generation he's from, right? <laughs> Thank God, I think I missed the castor oil, okay? Um, 
you know, the mother shovels in castor oil. The baby doesn't like it, but it's for his benefit. That is what he needs. It's more important right now. You may open up your mouth wide and ask for this or that, but Hashem might not, might do something you don't like, but it's a lifesaver for you. Anyway, he goes on and on. Sometimes when a man is asking for success in his business, Hashem sees that success in this business is not good for him. It, he bring, it brings him into bad company. He has no time to go to shul. Therefore, Hashem sends a gentleman from the criminal underworld to come into his plant at night, light a firebomb, and literally blow up his business. Suddenly, he's out of business. He's ruined, but it saved his life. Now he's able to start a new business. This is an actual story, he says. In his new business, the fellow was able to keep regular hours, which his previous business did not allow. His health had been deteriorating because of the first business. Now he kept more normal hours and felt better than he had in years. He went to shul. He even began learning Gemara again. He even began teaching people Gemara. It was truly an amazing thing that happened to him. And only because his business was firebombed. He opened up his mouth wide and asked for good things. And Hashem shoveled in a firebomb. It says, and I will fill it. Hashem will fill it. It will be from him. I will fill your mouth with what you want me to fill it with. Sometimes it's what you want, but sometimes it's not what you want. But it's all for your benefit. Okay, just a little bit of bitachon in there for us who are all striving to become better balei bitachon. Okay, this is the call for this section of request. The more helpless a person feels, the more helpful Hashem can be. Again, the more helpless a person feels, the more helpful Hashem can be. And I want to uh, digress here a little bit and talk a little bit about Hanukkah because I feel that this is one of the keys to understanding Hanukkah. And interestingly, uh, Rabbi Sandina Schoonmaker taught a class on Hanukkah. I don't know when, but I have a little piece of it. I couldn't find the rest of it. But it's enough to get this message across. And she talks about in the Al-Hanisim, in the Shemona Esri right now, we're adding a prayer every day for the three uh, times of the day that we dove in Shemona Esri. We're inserting a prayer that we say during Hanukkah, Al-Hanisim ve'al-Hapurka, and everybody knows that song. Al-Hanisim ve'al-Hapurka. Okay, so it starts like that, and then it goes into the story. And she, this is from the Sifse Chaim, and it's basically looking at the idea that if you look at Purim next to it, if anybody has a sitter, it says, Bimei Mordechai the Esther b'Shushan Habira. In the days of Mordechai and Esther in Shushan Habira. And the Sifse Chaim compares Hanukkah and says, Bimei Matusyahu ben Yochanan Kohen Gadol Hashmonai Uvanam. And he notes an interesting difference. He says, when it talks about Mordechai and Esther, it doesn't go into their lineage. It doesn't talk about where they came from in the prayer. And yet, on Hanukkah, it talks about the name in the days of Matisyahu, who, who was the son of Yochanan, Yochanan Kohen Gadol. So in those names, Matisyahu and Yochanan, the Sisei Chaim sees a, a clue to what Hanukkah is all about. He says the name Matis Yahu comes from the word Matatka, which, which means a gift from Hashem. And the name Yochanan is Yo, which is God's name, yod Hey Hanan. So again, God gave Hanan from the word Honein, which is um, going to be in the first bracha that we're going to discuss um, in the in the uh, brachas of request, right? Atachonein le'adam da'as. That's the one we're going to be doing today. So this idea of Hanan, which is free. It's a free gift, right? We say that Hashem gives matnas pinam. He doesn't pay us, uh, you know, he doesn't pay us for the mitzvahs we do in this world. It's not, you know, a business deal. You do this mitzvah, I give you this. You do that mitzvah, I give you that. We say that, you know, it wouldn't matter how many mitzvahs we do, nothing could pay Hashem back just for the fact that he wakes us up every morning. 
He gives us a brain that thinks. He gives us eyes that see. All of the blessings that we enjoy. There are no mitzvahs that we can do that are equivalent to the gift of life that's just given to us freely. And so we have this idea when it comes to our relationship with Hashem that it's all matnas chinam. Of course we're supposed to reciprocate. Of course we're supposed to try to the best of our human ability to follow Hashem's dictates and follow his hukim and do what he wants us to do. But again, for anybody to think that this is a business deal where, you know, Hashem gives me exactly what I give him, this is not a true idea. Hashem is always giving us much, much more. He continues, you know, in Tamar Devorah, we call Hashem the insulted king. Even though we're walking around slapping him and kicking him, you know, he continues to push the little button that gives us life and that allows us to do whatever it is we're doing, whether it's good or bad. The point is, is, is so much is coming like a loving parent just because I love you, right? And because I believe in your ability to get better, right? That's what we say every day, moda'ani lefanecha. Uh, great is your belief in me, Hashem. Not that I believe in you, but the fact that you woke me up this morning, wow. That means you believe that today I'm going to be better than I was yesterday. That I'm a work in progress. But everything is matnas chinam. Okay, back to this idea. So the idea is for Hanukkah that the victory that the Jewish people enjoyed during Hanukkah was a free gift based on these names, Matityahu and Yochanan. And the verbs, as you go on in this prayer, describe not what the Maccabees did at all. You know, it doesn't talk about how they took their swords and they strategized and they figured out how to kill the mighty Greeks and they killed the Greek generals. And they, you know, it's all about what Hashem did for them, as it says, right? Um, when the mighty Greek kingdom rose up against your people, Israel, to make them forget your Torah and compel them to stray from the statutes of your will. You and your great mercy, it's talking about Hashem, stood up for them in the time of their distress. You took up their grievance. You judged their claim. You avenged their wrong. You delivered the strong into the hands of the weak, the many into the hands of the few, the impure into the hands of the pure, the wicked into the hands of the righteous, and the wanton into the hands of the diligent students of your Torah. Okay? And for your people, Israel, you worked a great victory and salvation as this very day. So basically, we're talking about the war, but it doesn't really talk about the war. It talks about the idea that Hashem fought this war for you. It's all about Hashem. There's five parallel statements, right? You did this because of that. You took the weak, you put the weak in the hands of the uh, of uh, you delivered the strong into the hands of the weak, the many into the hands of the few. So the point that this is making is why did Hashem do this? Why did he deliver the impure into the hands of the pure, the evil ones into the hands of the tzaddikim, the many into the hands of the few? All of these five are describing why the Jewish people won. And the main point that Dina Schoonmaker makes here is the fact that the Jews were halashim and me'atim, that they were weak and few in number, is contributed to their victory. It contributed to their victory. It wasn't a stira to their victory, but rather it was the reason for their victory. And the reason is, going back to this idea again, the more helpless I feel, the more helpful Hashem can be. And this is how they felt. Once I put it in Hashem's hands, there's a lot more room for success. If you have a lot of talents and skills, it can actually be to your detriment. As it says in Kohelet, Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest of all men, men wrote, Lo lekalim lemaron, velo legibor hamilchama, the race doesn't always go to the swift. We know this idea, right? The victory doesn't always go to the strong. The bread doesn't always go to the wise person. And the wealth doesn't always go to the brilliant uh, businessman. Okay? But rather, right? That probably ends with... 
the one who trusts in Hashem, right? These people trust in their chariots. These people trust in their horses. But we, the secret of the Jewish people's uh, existence, with no land, with no army, with the greatest empires trying to destroy us, not little piddly places, but Greek, Rome, Babylon, Persia, Germany in our modern day, the greatest superpowers. And yet we know that we are me'atim and halashi. And the more helpless we feel, the more helpful Hashem can be. The person who runs fast can trip before he gets to the finish line. There's a danger in being so gifted and so talented. What's the danger? My strength and the strength of my hand did this. I'm responsible for my success. Right? Yeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Who needs you, Hashem? I did it myself. I got the spot myself. Right? Forget what I said. I'm not lacking. I have everything I need. So I don't need you. And that's the danger because you'll attribute your success to your own ability. Being gifted can be a liability if you don't attribute your success to Hashem. It's because they knew they were small and weak that they gave themselves completely over to Hashem to do it for them. They had no other choice, right? It's like the Jewish people when we were at the Yamsuf and we had the Egyptians chasing us and we had the water in front of us. We were between a rock and a hard place. But of course, the kunz is to feel this way when you're not in those kind of situations. To create this kind of pressure and stress inside yourself, you know, through your imagination, if you like, to understand that you are just like that Meshulah who comes to the door and knocks on your door and says, give me, I don't have, I need. And that's the way we're supposed to come in front of Hashem, okay? It's because they knew they were small and weak that they gave themselves over to Hashem to do it for them. Hashem's abilities are infinite. When you hand it over to Him, the chances of success are much more likely. Even sometimes a person without talent, and this is the opposite idea, sometimes a person with few resources and without talent or skill feel vulnerable about their weakness. But if you hand it over to Hashem, right? Like we were talking about in last week's Bitachon class. Thank Hashem for the things that you don't have. You know, the first circle is thank Hashem for the things you do have. But then there's another circle that says thank Him for the things you don't have because if you don't have it, you don't need it. Right? I don't need those vitamins just because she's taking 20 of them every morning. Thank God. Right? So the idea is sometimes a person without talent might feel vulnerable, but if you hand it over to Hashem and you reframe and say, it's not about me, it's about my doing to the degree that I can, but Hashem will take over from there. And it's really interesting um, that we have this parallel between Yosef HaTzadik and Hanukkah. And we read always in this time period, we always read about Yosef and his rise to power and the twists and turns and the ups and downs of how he gets there, and about Hanukkah. And it's no coincidence, of course, but rather a coincidence that uh, the two always come together. And it's just interesting that Rabbi Brevda talks about the connecting uh, piece of uh, uh, Yosef and the Chashmonayim. And he says it relates to the end of this week's Parsha, last week's Parsha, Again, when we discuss that uh, Yosef, who was on a very high level of bitachon and reliance on Hashem, uh, made a misstep when he asked the Sar Hamashkim, the butler, twice to put in a good word for him to Paro when he gets out of jail and let him know that, you know, there's this guy in prison who shouldn't be there. And not only that, he's extremely talented and knows how to tell dreams. And please make sure you mention him twice. So the first thing was that he asked somebody to help him, which on our level, we said it would be considered a sin for us not to ask. 
right? For us thinking that we're on too high a level of itachon, and we didn't make the proper hishtadlut by saying, put in a good word for me. But for somebody on Yosef's level, right? Not only was it the fact that he asked him, but this guy was such a low life. He's called a rehavim, which means Egyptians of the lowest type, that he would even deign to think this guy's going to do him a favor, right? That once he gets out of jail and mention him in any nice way, that in itself showed a certain desperation, which was not becoming of one of the pillars of the Jewish people. So we know that he was punished with an extra two years of jail to rectify this and work on this being chaser in this emuna, in this bitachon that he should have had. Okay? Again, we said that the greater you are, the more your averas mean have huge repercussions and ramifications for the future of the Jewish people. Maisela avos simon labanim, right? The deeds of the forefathers say what will happen to their children into the future. So a little misstep for us, what would even be a mitzvah, okay, is for them considered an avera and it has to be rectified. Of course, Yosef does tshuva and he recognizes the mistake, but how is this uh, parallel to the Hashmanaim. So I had never heard this story. And you know, whenever you learn, you always learn new things every year about the holidays. You think you knew all the stories. And actually, there's an interesting story here about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says that Matisyao, the son of Yochanan, the Kohen Gadol, had a daughter who was the most beautiful woman in the world. She was betrothed to the son of Hashmonai. Both families had fled to caves in the mountains to keep Torah and mitzvahs. The Greeks had a law, I'm sure many of you know, to uproot the holiness of Jewish marriage, and therefore any betrothed Jewish woman had to be violated by one of the high-ranking Greek officers before consummation of the marriage. When the Greeks got wind that Matisyao's daughter was betrothed, they dispatched a group of soldiers to find her and discovered them in the caves in which they were hiding. One of the soldiers grabbed her by her hair, dragged her out onto a Torah that he had spread on the ground. He was about to disgrace her. Her family members watched in desperation and looked to the east. And this is the key. They looked to the east. What does that mean? Well, we think, well, the east, isn't that Yerushalayim? Isn't that where the Beis Amiktash is? They looked to Hashem, obviously. But no, the story says, they looked to the east, hoping a band of marauding Persian soldiers, who were actually enemies of the Greeks, would come to their rescue. And this, on their level, was considered the wrong place to look for salvation. Hashmonai said to Matisya, the Kohen Gadol, We are wrong to hope for the Persians to save us. For isn't it written, Cursed is the one who trusts in man, and blessed is the one who trusts in Hashem? Matisya responded, well spoken. I and my three sons and you and your seven sons makes 12, corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. I trust that Hashem will perform a miracle for us. At that moment, Elezer grabbed the sword of the Greek soldier, cut off his head, proceeded to slaughter the remaining Greek soldiers. The Peyton referred to this incident when he wrote, with 12 young ones, Hashem, fight their fight. Hashem assisted them because they trusted in him. So again, two vital lessons that we learned from Yosef and the Chashmanayim. Even when we make a mistake in terms of our level of emun and bitachon and we put our trust in things other than God, we can immediately do tshuva and use that mistake to carry us to new heights, right? We put our trust in that doctor who everybody said is the best doctor in the whole wide world and God forbid he, he didn't give us the right medicine. I remember when my mother, she had the best doctor in Canada, you know, and the doctor was experiencing domestic problems at home. I think, God forbid, she had a son who had committed suicide recently. Whatever the reason, the point is that she gave my mother a medicine that made her much, much sicker and ended her up in Mount Sinai Hospital in acute elder care because of the, the, um, the protocol that she had put her on. So when we put our trust in people, sometimes Hashem comes to show us. That's not where your trust should go. And we learn, and hopefully it helps us turn in a new direction. 
build ourselves in terms of our reliance on Hakol Yachol, that Hashem, you are the only one who is capable of everything and anything, right? And yes, the doctor, I have a, a I have a chiv to find the best doctor, but God forbid I should think that that's where my salvation comes from. Very difficult, because you have to hold both things in your hand at the same time. You have to do the hishtadlus and yet know that your hishtadlus has nothing to do with the results. Hashem will decide what the results will be. So we learn from this, that, and also we learn how important it is to strengthen our imuna constantly. And of course, one of the ways that we do this is by recognizing again that the more helpless we feel, the more helpful Hashem can be. Okay, going into this section of request. Now, this request section, interestingly, just so you know, is listed in descending order of significance. So the first one that we're going to ask for is obviously the most important. And the first thing we ask for is wisdom and Torah knowledge. And it's only after that we ask for material prosperity. So again, as I said in another class, you know, there's no mitzvah in the Torah to be wealthy, to have way more than you need. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's a blessing. It's, it gives you kavod in this world, and, 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 and there's something good about it if Hashem's chosen you to have it. But it's a test. As we said, it's a test where a person feels, I don't need your help. I'm self-sufficient. I have nothing to beg you for. I've got everything I need. And it can be a um, pegam. It can be a blemish that's very difficult to overcome. As we said, poverty is also a test. And the best place to be is having your needs met and not having to worry whether there's going to be bread in your basket tomorrow. Okay? So that you're able to fulfill your spiritual and your um, human potential, right? Even Maslow, Abraham Maslow, who obviously was a Jew, right? Who was a psychologist. I remember studying him, anybody who took Psych 101, right? And he has a pyramid of the needs that people have. And he basically shows that once your basic needs are met, the top of the pyramid is the desire for self-transcendence, for self-perfection, for uh, higher types of um, processes of more spiritual kind of development, becoming a mensch that people can focus on when all the other things, the physical needs for survival are taken care of. Um, okay, so wisdom and Torah knowledge come first and later come prosperity. Why? Because knowledge is much more important than wealth. If for business, a person would be willing to travel a mile the Torah sages teach us, for Torah insight, you should be willing to travel six miles. So if you're willing to go halfway around the world for a good business deal, then you should go around twice to find somebody who's going to give you a good piece of wisdom, right? Go to Uman or wherever you have to go to get that piece of spiritual wisdom. If you go to great lengths to avoid a financial loss, then you should go even further to avoid a sin, which is a spiritual loss, right? I'm not sure if this is a good hexer. I don't know. I'm too lazy. I don't want to go. I don't know if this restaurant's really on the up and up, if the mashkiach in the kitchen is, you know, knows what he's doing, whatever. But, you know, we're here, so forget about it. Okay, there are people who, I used to have a friend, she drove me crazy, but literally I tried to take her out for lunch once a month in Brooklyn, and she was the type that marched into the kitchen. Okay, she was an extreme, but she would march into the kitchen in every Brooklyn restaurant to find out what's going on in there, okay? So as you can imagine, every time I got settled in my seat, it was time to get up and find another restaurant. <laughs> so after doing this a few times, I gave up my, you know, secret pledge that I was taking her out for lunch every month because this was not going to be simple. But in the meantime, she was Makar of all the Israeli waiters in every restaurant we went to, too, you know. And that was, that was another side benefit. Um, she was Israeli. Uh, anyway, the point is, is, you know, but she was willing to, to make herself uncomfortable, to make sure that she was in a place 
where she was going to incur no sin by eating something that would not be acceptable for her standard and for what she felt was appropriate. Okay. <clears throat> well, let's look at the prayer for anybody who has their sitter in front of them. Um, okay, we'll use this. Okay, so it says, This is the fourth bracha in Shemona Esrei. You graciously endow man with intellect, and teach insight to a frail mortal. So we have two types of wisdom so far, da'at and bina. Endow us graciously from you, Hashem, from yourself. Dea Bina Vehaskiel, with intellect, insight, and wisdom. Baruch Atah Hashem, Konein Hada'at. Blessed are you, Hashem, the one who graciously gives intellect. Okay, so the first thing we learn from that is that intellect is a gift. To be able to think, if you've ever seen anybody out of their mind, or you've been out of your mind, <laughs> with anger or whatever, we know how fragile the human mind is. And the fact that we have the ability to think is the greatest gift Hashem can give us, and that is why it is number one on the request. And it's called a matnaspinam. It's a free gift. It's something that we don't get because we deserve it. We get it because Hashem gives it to us, because he loves us. Okay, now just to go back over the words of this bracha, adam da'as. You give a human being adam. Why the word adam? Adam is always a, always connotes um, honor, right? That a human being is called an adam. Aleph dalad mem. It's interesting because in that word we see that aleph represents Hashem and dam is blood. So it's almost like saying that a human being is a composite of these godly ability, right? To be able to think, to be able to feel, and, and, and that we're a ruach memalale, we're a speaking spirit. And yet we are composed of blood, right? That which is animalistic, that which is very human and physical, right? We have the ability to adameh, to be similar to our creator, right? That was one of the ways that Adam Harishon said to Adam, you know, he said, the reason God doesn't want you to eat from the tree is because he doesn't want you to become God because you're so similar to God. You have this lofty soul. And that was, you know, his, uh, his sneaky way of saying, of trying to get them to sin. You know, it's only because he doesn't want any competitors that he doesn't want you eating from the tree. Okay, but you grant to Adam, Dea, Da'as. What's Da'as? So we usually translate it as knowledge. In the Torah, it's often used when it talks about uh, uh, intimate relations between a man and a woman. That he knew his wife, right? Adam knew Chava. Avram knew Sarah, and they had a child. So da'at, as much as it means the ability to think, it also means the connect connection. That whenever we think about something, even an object or another human being, we're creating connection. And that's da'as. Da'as is also a combination of bina and chachma, which we're going to talk about, two other types of wisdom. So da'as is those two combined. Only human beings have da'as. Okay, so you give to Adam da'as umilamed le'enosh bina, and you teach insight to a frail mortal. Now, one of the commentaries says that this is a continuation saying, you give da'as to man, meaning to the man of honor, and his job is to teach bina le'enosh, meaning to the common man. Enosh means a frail mortal. Anashim is people, right? It's more like a general term for frail man. 
who needs wisdom to be able to get through life. So the Adam is supposed to teach. Okay? So this prayer is called a transitional prayer. It's the prayer that takes us, right? It's the fourth prayer represented by the letter Dalit, which is the number four, which is like a door, right? Delet and Dalit. Delet is a door. So it's the door that's opening us up, the transition between praising Hashem. So the first part we're saying, You, Hashem, one of your greatnesses is that you give man the ability to think. That is your praise that you give us from you. We are like Adama. We are like you in our ability to reason and think and have logic. Okay? And then we start asking, Give us. Give us from your wisdom. Give us from your Bina and Da'as. So that's the first request. So we have this transitional prayer which combines both praise and, and asking. So the idea too here is that before we can even request, we need the wisdom to know what to ask for. And we're saying wisdom comes from you, Hashem. The more connected we are to Hashem, the more spiritual antennae we have that are receptive to be able to receive wisdom from Hashem. So what this prayer tells us is that all of us have different aptitudes. All of us have different intelligences, but that wisdom, when we talk about wisdom, true wisdom, that comes from Hashem and that's accessible to everyone and it's something you have to ask for. Right? Every morning we say, Reshis Hachma Yiras Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is knowing God, is fear of God. Yiras Hashem is recognizing and being aware that there's a God in the world. And that's true wisdom because having a lot of knowledge, knowing a lot of facts, being able to, you know, uh, win um, Jeopardy, right? to answer all the questions in Jeopardy, that obviously shows a certain intelligence. But that's not what we call chokhmah because chokhmah is the application of the intelligence, specifically in terms of how Ben Adam is supposed to behave in terms of how our service to Hashem is supposed to be enhanced or practiced, right? We'll talk more about that. So, Adam, again, Adam represents the scholar and Enosh represents people. And Adam, the scholar, has to teach the common man, right? The Jewish people, we always had our scholars. We always had our Talmidei Chachamim. They formed the backbone of they're, the, they're on the top of the pyramid. Everything trickles down from there, right? Just like Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, when he, uh, at Har Sinai, when Yisro told him, if you're going to get tired, if you're the only one teaching everybody, you have to create this pyramid system, right? You have the, the great people at the top and the judges and the elders, etc., etc. So too, we still rely on this system that there's a trickle-down effect from those scholars down to the regular um. And every generation has those people that we are meant to recognize as the leading minds of the Jewish people of that day. And we need the humility to recognize how important they are for us. To ask our questions, to make sure we don't go in ways that are foreign. Okay. Um, so the idea of what's da'as and what's bina. So da'as and bina are kind of like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? Men have more da'as, we're told, and women have more bina. And the word bina actually is used in relation to the creation of women. When Chava was created, it says, by Yiven, and Hashem built Chava, right? We know he built her from Adam's rib. And the word built, Vayiven, Rashi says, it refers to the fact that women have Bina Yatera, Bina Yasera, that a woman was endowed with an extra Bina. What is it? Something we call women's intuition, right? It's even in the secular idea. 
And it's the ability to infer one thing from another. You know, they say that when guests come to a house, women have a better sense of who that guest is and what their, uh, you know, how they tick than a man does. They have a better internal barometer of what's up with the person, that emotional ability to infer, to filter it through the mind and through the emotions and understand things. That's something that they say women have extra of. Now, of course, there's always uh, exceptions to the general rule. And, you know, it's very important to realize this, but generally speaking, this is, this is the way it's understood. And da'as refers to men when it says, again, that the man knew his wife, right? So it's another type of connection, but it's different. There's different styles of intellectual ability. It's interesting because we used to, um, when I was studying at Iyat with Rebetzin Weinberg, we had a halacha teacher who's become very famous today. His name is Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz. He's the head of Asia Torah worldwide today. Um, and he has his own kolel where he trains uh, guys who want to go out and do kiru. But Rebetzin Weinberg discovered him when he was a young guy in the mirror and snatched him to be our halacha teacher. And when Aisha Torah found out about him, they started taking him from us. And he would go back and forth and teach halacha, the same class to men and women. And once somebody asked him, like, what's it like, the difference between teaching men and women? Like, what, is there a difference? Do you find that the questions are different? Do you find... So he said one thing that never I always, you know, remembered. And he said, the difference between men and women is when I teach the same class... Women are always saying, okay, but what do we do? What do we do? Just tell us what we do. We don't care. We don't want to know all about the abstract, theoretical, how the refrigerator works. You know, can I open it or can I close it? You know, that's what I want to know. Again, this is general. There are women who love to know how things work. You know, my mother was one of those women. I think I told you that story. She was once fixing the oven and, you know, she got a hardware guy on the store, on the phone and she was, he said to her, well, what, what are you doing? And he said, well, you know, I, I, uh, you know, he said, did you put the blue wire on the red wire? She said, yeah. And did you turn that little doohickey on the top? Yeah. And did you do this? And he finally ended the conversation with lady, do you want a job? Anyway, the point is, is, you know, some people love figuring out how things work, but mostly Rabbi Berkowitz noted that men cannot ask, how, what do we do, and just be very happy in the abstract theoretical, right? Whereas women say, what do we do? What Just tell us what to do, and we'll do it, okay? Which is probably why Hashem gave the Torah to women first, right? <laughs> he knew we would do it. Anyway, okay, so Seichel. What's Seichel? Seichel refers to intellectual ability. Seichel is applied wisdom. Also. And Seichel means, again, how do we take what we know and apply it to real life? And the end of this bracha, we're going to end. We end with Baruch Atah Hashem. Blessed are you, Hashem who is the giver of Da'as. And again, we said Da'as is the combination of Bina and Hachma. So really in that word, we have, you know, everything and something else. And, and it says, blessed are you, Hashem, gracious giver of intellect. So the Malachim, when did they say this bracha? So there's two sources for when they said it. One is they said it when Yosef was taught the 70 languages. If you remember, Yosef knew all 70 languages of the world, which really impressed um, Paro. As he entered Paro's palace, there were 70 steps, right? And on every step, Yosef spoke another language. Now, Paro also understood 70 languages. What floored Paro is when Yosef started to speak Lashem HaKodesh as he approached Paro, and Paro recognized that that was one language that he did not know. And so he understood Yosef's superiority over him in this private meeting, which went on for him to make Yosef the head of Egypt, right? He gave him 
all the power um, or most, you know, almost all the power. But the point is, is that the angel said this when these 70 languages were taught to Yosef. The other uh, source is that uh, it was said by the angels when Moshe was taught the secret of how to use Hashem's name, right? We know that Hashem has a name that if you utter it, it has tremendous power. It's the name that Moshe used when he killed the Mitzri, right? That was beating up a Jew. He just uttered the divine name and the person, right? So that's another source for it. Okay, just to end on this idea of this prayer, the idea is, is that without intellect and understanding, prayer is meaningless. So of course, if we just rattle off the words, when God says, you know, I don't need your sacrifices, I don't need your lip service, I don't need your coming to shul, and you know, talking about what everybody's wearing, okay? I don't need that, you know? I need your heart. I need you, right? I don't want you to just ask me for the keys to the car and then leave and come back again when you need some money in your pocket. I want you. I want relationship, Hashem says. Now, the number of words, because... Man is superior over an animal by virtue of his intellect. That's what makes us able to have this much more developed relationship with the divine than anything else, any other creation in this world. But it takes effort and it takes work. And as many of the sages say, before you even start dubbing, you have to dub and to be able to dub him, right? You have to dub into Hashem to say, open up my heart. Because our hearts are compared to stone, right? Give me a heart of flesh. We develop this heart of stone through the vicissitudes of life. A, a child isn't born with this. A child isn't born deviant, you know, unless there's a real major issue. But generally speaking, you know, we're born with a heart of flesh, but we develop a heart of stone because we feel that that's the only way to get through life. You know, we got to be tough. We got to be strong. But at the expense of closing up our hearts to the one who wants our hearts and to the one who wants to answer the needs that we have. But again, he wants us to become aware of them by asking and by requesting and recognizing that this is the address when you, where you can get all your prayers and tefillahs answered. Not just for my needs, but because I want to be a happier, more accomplished, uh, reaching my potential in my ruchnias and my spirituality for not just myself, but for the sake of the world, for the sake of my mission in this world, for the sake of bringing the world, being part, being one of the players that is bringing the world to its potential that is helping the world to unfold towards its goal, right? Where everybody will live with such an, uh, 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 a tangible sense of the reality of God. But as it is now, we have tremendous free will because we are in the dark. We are living in the darkness. We have a little light of Hanukkah that reminds us and has reminded us through the Galus very interesting. The letters of the dreidel, Nun, Gimel, Haitian, they actually spelled the word Goshen, which was the part of Egypt that the Jews settled in. And I just read very interestingly that, um, you know, the four letters represent the four exiles that the Jewish people would go through based on the very beginning of the Torah, where it talks about before the light was created, Right. Hoshech al Pnei Tahom, Veruach Elokim, Rachefet al Pnei Hamayim. That these refer to the four; these letters on the dreidel refer to the four exiles. And the spinning of the dreidel is the idea of the Jewish people spinning through history, spinning through these four exiles. And the shin actually represents Greece, which represents Sechel, which was an attack on our Torah knowledge, where the Greeks were saying, "We like your Torah knowledge." We love your wisdom, but just stop doing stuff. 
Stop making yourselves different. We're happy to integrate the wisdom of the Torah together with our chitzonious wisdom, our external type of wisdom, right? Our architecture, our arts, our mathematics, our philosophy. We're happy to bring that in. But just give up all of the trappings that go with it and we'll accept you and we'll welcome you. And I just want to end by telling you this last thing. Well, let me, tell, let me finish this. We don't want to go there. Okay. The number of words in the blessing are 17. And 17 is the same gematria as the word tov. So having sechel, having intellect is goodness, right? The blessing starts with an aleph and it ends with a taf. And Shlomo Melech is telling us, atachonein, right? Bechonein da'as, da'at. Shlomo Melech says that if you have wisdom, you have everything. You have from aleph to taf. You have everything. The third thing is there's 60 letters in this uh, prayer and there's 60 tractates of the Mishnah. It's the fourth bracha, which we said is a dalit, a doorway that's taking us from praise to request, but it's also the idea of a dal, which is a pauper. We're like beggars knocking on Hashem's door. The more we realize how helpless we are, the more helpful Hashem can be. Intellect and insight we're going to see lead to the next bracha, which is tshuva. And that's the bracha where we face ourselves and we're honest about our shortcomings. And that takes intelligence. It takes intellectual honesty, right? Which is a commodity that's not found very much in our world. Okay? I just want to end with this last piece about Hanukkah. I know we're late. But the difference between Torah wisdom and secular wisdom or the wisdom of the Greeks, which of course we, we say is uh, true wisdom and we value that kind of wisdom, that chokhmah, which the word chokhmah is the two words koachmah, the, the uh, power to be able to ask what. What is this? What, you know, what is this? That curiosity that human beings have, that to, ability to develop things the way the Greeks did. The famous Greek philosopher Aristotle is the perfect example of how the magnificent human intellect can be corrupted by mortal frailty. In his guide, Rambam states that Aristotle, who appears in the Gemara, by the way, because he, he like Alexander the Great, was so impressed by the wisdom of the Jewish people. And as a seeker of wisdom and philosophy, he wanted to know it. So there are discussions that he had with the, with the rabbis of that time period on different subjects. The Rambam states that Aristotle reached the pinnacle of human understanding and came to the point where he was just one step beneath the level of prophecy. Right? If so, asked Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman, why did the brilliant Aristotle fail to discover and recognize the existence of the one true God? How could Aristotle be oblivious to a truth which is known to even the most simple Jew? The answer is that Aristotle didn't want to see the truth because the truth makes many difficult and uncomfortable demands on the body. Aristotle was bribed by his desirous, complacent body and robbed of clear vision. As the Torah warns, you shall accept no bribe, for the bribe blinds even the eyes of the wise. So just that last Hanukkah thought. And the lights that we light tonight, ladies, and believe me, ladies, you have a special hand in this light. The Torah says, the halacha says that after we light candles, women should not do any work. Of course, my husband always reminds me, yeah, but you're allowed to prepare food. It says you're allowed to prepare food. <laughs> I want some latkes. Okay, well, I'm still having my half an hour of peace, okay? Anyway, so... Half an hour, you're supposed to sit. It's a mitzvah just to look at the lights. They say that just looking at the Hanukkah lights brings wisdom. The light of the Hanukkah menorah, we know, is the light that was stored away at the beginning of creation. 
says that when God created the light, he took some of that light and he stored it away into the Torah. He stored it away for tzaddikim in the next world. But every year on Hanukkah, we get to get a glimpse of this light that has sustained us through all of the dreidel spinning of the four exiles and the one that we're still in. And that lights up the darkness that we are very much in right now in this period of history, right? Before the dawn, before the star of the morning, the first, uh, sorry, before the first dawn, it's the night is always the blackest. And that's the time period in history that we're living in. Okay. Before birth, the birth pains are always the most intense. And therefore, this is the time period that we're living in, ladies. So anything that we do in our Vodas Hashem, anything that we do that flexes our spiritual muscles is worth so much because it's so hard right now. Thinking good thoughts, saying Hashem Hu HaMelech, recognizing everything we have and everything we don't have is tailor-made for each one of us and that God wants us to ask and that God wants us to change our situations, whatever they are in whatever way that we can or change, as Viktor Frankl said, when you're challenged to... When you're in a situation that's challenging, sometimes the only thing to do is recognize that you're being uh, not challenged to change the situation, but, but challenged to change yourself. I wish I could say that more succinctly. He says it very well. Um, a situation of challenge sometimes is teaching us that we can't change the situation, but we can change ourselves. And that is what the situation has come to teach us. So anyway, thanks for listening and have a great Hanukkah. And Mirz Hashem will see you on Wednesday for those of you who can come. And Thank you, Devorah. Thanks, Devorah. Thank you.